What a blessed day it is, the first day of the week that permits us to assemble and do so in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's always a thrilling thing, of course, to gather on the first day of the week just as the New Testament commands us with, of course, the purpose and the desire to offer unto God the heartfelt worship that is within you and me. Now, worship is a set of acts of reverence directed to God. And as we come together today to do that, we are assured in John 4, 24, that God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. This day, of course, it's already been mentioned, is Mother's Day. We certainly appreciate and know that very well. And let me add my statement to all those mothers present, how much we appreciate not only all that you have done and all that you do currently, but all that yet you will do in terms of being that person so influential in the lives of not only your husband, your children, but yea, many others as well. We do wish certainly a very happy Mother's Day to each of you. In fact, part of our lesson today will touch upon reminders to each of us as it relates to the beautiful consideration of the following. Bible mothers and challenges. I suppose it being Mother's Day, it's not that unusual for perhaps a preacher as a part of his lesson to refer to Proverbs 31, that reference to the virtuous woman and the lovely descriptions of that woman and her work for her husband and her family. But I thought today we might take a slightly different approach than that. It is true that mothers, just like everybody else, they have their challenges. They have those issues, those problems that they face. And the Word of God, just as in all the other cases, does offer us some encouragement and some help to even deal with those circumstances as they arise in our lives. And so this next slide is one in which I would encourage you to consider the following with me. The Bible has a lot to say about mothers. Would you notice about the middle of that slide? 328 times in some form or another, the Bible will use and refer to the word mother. That's a lot of times. The very first one occurs, as you can well tell, early on in the Bible. The second reference I call to your attention in Genesis 3, verse 20. Eve, it is there said, was the mother of all living. And one of the last occurrences is far over in 2 Timothy 1, 5, where the mother of Timothy is mentioned. I say all that to say that lots of references to mothers, but would you also appreciate that they dealt, many of them, with challenges, and that can be very encouraging to you and me today as we see what they faced and realize we sometimes face something very similar to it. And the Word of God has within it what we need to meet those challenges, to overcome them, and to live in a way to be a blessing to our children and to, yea, all others that may know us. Let's study about Eve. We're going to look at five of these Bible mothers this morning. Now, we'll not devote a lot of time to each one of them, but yet one by one we'll at least highlight some of the challenges that she faced. And yet with those challenges, we'll use that to encourage ourselves. We each know the record of Eve in many ways very well. God formed Adam first. Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And yet later in that chapter, it is said it was not good that the man was alone. Genesis 2, 18. 
In the verses that follow, God brought a deep sleep upon Adam. And from his side, he took a rib. And from that rib, he fashioned a woman. He brought her to the man. And you and I recall as that second chapter of Genesis closes these rather remarkable words. It is there highlighted, is it not? She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. But did you notice what comes next? So as the second chapter of Genesis closes, what a delightful record. Now we have the perfection of creation finished. Everything is good at this point because the only thing not good that man was alone, now that has been remedied. There's a woman in the picture. And yet as chapter 3 opens, we find the serpent coming before who? Eve. Now, as that conversation develops between the serpent and Eve, you and I perhaps readily know she knew exactly what God said. And yet, as a result of the temptation, she chose to transgress what He said. She chose to partake of that fruit, gave to her husband, and he ate of it as well. But did you notice it would appear then that she committed the first sin? As all of that happens, that brings us to note this. That particular statement, that decision on her part, will ultimately have consequences even as far away as 1 Timothy 2, when there it is said that the reason for why women are to keep silent in regard to worship or those activities like it go all the way back that far. She was in the transgression, Eve was, but not in the same way Adam was. But at this point, what about these challenges? So we've noticed... Then in the temptation, what what took place? Look at what I would ask you to notice next. The Bible is very clear in saying, She, that's Eve, was the mother of all living. No human beings ever since that time can be traced other than to her. Now, I know there are those in the scientific considerations who sometimes will assert that maybe God planted lots of peoples in various places around the earth. That's not so. Eve was the mother of all living, not just most of them, but all of them. But isn't that true that that begs the following interesting observation? Eve then was the mother who had no mother. Remember, God miraculously created her. And so she had no mother. How do you suppose things happened when the time came that she gave birth to Cain and Abel, when they started teething, or when they began to ran fever? She never had a mother to ask. Eve never had anyone to go to with motherly advice and counsel, for she was the first one. In that sense, she certainly had a bit of a challenge, didn't she? How often does perhaps a lady rely upon the wisdom of her mother when she's rearing children, when various circumstances in life arise, but yet for Eve there was no such possibility. There was no mother earlier than she. Let's add to that one more thing, and you'll notice it near the bottom of the slide. Eve also faced some challenges in regard to the choices that her children made. All of us know very well what Cain did to Abel. So here were her two boys, the first ones born in that way, that natural way, and yet Cain took the life of Abel. 
Sometimes mothers face challenges and that their children don't make the decisions that they would wish they did. Or sometimes that they choose to do things that quite frankly are rather different than what the mother would have wished they would choose. The Bible doesn't have a lot to say about Eve beyond the text of Genesis 4 and 5. But may I say that near the bottom of that slide we can assert this. It may be that your mother is still alive. Honor her, respect her. That's what the Bible commands that we do to our mothers. Even if she is passed on, though, through that avenue, that channel of death, may I say that the Word of God still allows the beautiful appreciation of those who can serve as a mother figure in life. Ponder Titus 2 verse 4 with me for just a moment. On that occasion, what was it the inspired apostle directed in regard to powerful words to Titus? You give these admonitions. Older women teach the younger women. You instill in them what? Love their husbands. Now, that's not always easy. Being a man, I can speak about that. And, of course, you ladies know that. Sometimes that can be difficult, but yet older women are admonished and encouraged. You set before these younger women an admonition, an example to teach them how to love their husbands and not only that, to love their children. Haven't you ever thought that's interesting? What mother needs advice on how to love her children? Shouldn't that come natural? And yet there, that's contained in the Word of God. Isn't it true that there are some words of wisdom Things that come from experience that an older, seasoned mother can share with that younger woman who perhaps is a new mother or soon to be a mother to help her know how to rear her children and to guide her house in the way that will be the greatest blessing to God. Eve met the challenges. Let's look at the second mother. For not only is it true we can make those statements about Eve, let's consider Sarah. Again, same book, the book of Genesis. Perhaps as we merely mention the name Sarah, many things may perhaps come to mind. Let me start at this point. Sarah, of course, was the wife of Abraham. And I'm going to go ahead and call them by those names in which they're known later. But isn't it true that when he was 75 years old, God called Abram to leave that Ur of the Chaldees and proceed to a place that he would be shown. You and I remember he went. And not only that, God made to him a dramatic promise, through you shall all nations be blessed. Problem was, Sarah didn't have any children. Ten years would pass, she still didn't have any children. Eleven years would pass, she still didn't have any children. How was this promise going to be fulfilled? And finally, Sarah had an idea. Maybe it's through Hagar. That is to say, Sarah had a handmaid. Abram, you go into her and maybe she will bear children and that'll be the great promise that God would wish to come through your loins. Abram did. He went into her to Hagar and a son was born to her, that son named Ishmael. Note the second comment on that slide. How did Sarah treat Hagar? How did Sarah treat Ishmael? In many ways, this is one of the first mixed families, if you please, that we read about in the Bible. 
you'll notice Sarah didn't treat Hagar very well and all, in fact, kicked her out of the house. Sent her packing and sent her on her way and did the same thing to Ishmael. In that sense, Sarah's not the highest example, I suppose. But you'll notice that does afford you and I at least an opportunity to think about this. Look at that next statistic. We live in a world that obviously is somewhat different than it was decades ago. When I looked at the statistics, I found it rather shocking. Over 50% of all the children in the United States of America live in a home where there's at least one half-brother or half-sister. In other words, there's a lot of amalgamated families. Circumstances in which you're living with the dad who is not your biological dad or with a mother who's not your biological mother. And you're there with these other boys and girls who aren't your full brothers and sisters. Notice Sarah had to deal with this, and she didn't deal with it very well. So it is, look at the bottom. It's true that in our families, and a mother is so often so very good at this, to love each of her children in a dramatically equal way. Now notice, children are different. Their personalities are different. Their behaviors are different. Their tendencies can be different. And yet a mother will find those ways to love each one of them, never ever showing favoritism or partiality because that's damaging. That's hurtful. What happened on this occasion? Due to that behavior of Sarah, how did Isaac and Ishmael get along? They didn't get along very well. Don't you and I remember Ishmael, in fact, mocked Isaac. Ishmael didn't get along with him at all. Let's close that slide like this. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye even so unto them, for this is the law and the prophets. Treating others the way that you wish or prefer that they treat you, as you and I set that high standard and that desire, it can be such a dramatically meaningful thing to our children and to the other members of our families. In 1 Corinthians 13, what is it that love does? Love rejoices in the truth. And it does not rejoice in iniquity. Love will never thus take pleasure and take excitement in what's wrong. So we can learn from Sarah in that case at least what not to do. And we can close the slide like this. Haven't you often been amazed at the family situation of Timothy? In Acts 16, when Paul came into that area of Derby and Lystra, there was a disciple there who was mentioned to him. Apparently his reputation was known and they brought to Paul the attention. There's a man here named Timothy. He'd be good for you to include as a part of your work. Isn't it amazing? Timothy's father, we don't even know his name, but his mother was named Eunice. His grandmother was named Lois. And Paul was able to say of Timothy, your faith is a genuine, unfeigned one, and that first existed in your mother and also your grandmother. They instilled within Timothy an appreciation of faithfulness, an understanding of the God of heaven and what it meant to serve Him. 
And when the time came for the opportunity, Timothy was happy to do it. Mothers, be thankful. When, over those years of training and example, and those hours of investment in the lives of your children, they make the decision to obey the gospel. They make the decision to relinquish their life and their talents for the service of one higher than they. And they look forward to thinking about the character of living in such a way that heaven can be their home. It's a dramatic thing when a child makes that decision. We understand that when that time of invitation comes, you know, a parent can't force their child to obey the gospel. As we've often noted, that is not a free will observation. Isn't it true? God demands free will offerings. Leviticus 1 verse 1. And how thrilling it is for parents when they see a child of his or her own volition and choice choose to become a voluntary citizen in the greatest kingdom of all, the kingdom of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's look at a third mother. In addition to these two, what about Rebecca? As we journey through that book of Genesis, we now come to Genesis 25. These initial comments, it seems, are well to be noted. As you remember, Isaac reached that age in life when he had his eyes set, if you please, upon Rebekah, and they married. But again, as has been the case earlier, she was barren. She didn't have any children. Apparently at that time wasn't able to bear children. Isaac entreated God on her behalf. Genesis 25 verses 21 and following tells us, and God answered that prayer and she became pregnant. But there were twins in her womb. Twins, you see. And God revealed something to her. You see, the pregnancy didn't go very well. I say that for the following reason. There was something unusual about it, so much so that Rebecca became concerned. In your pregnancy, or have you known women who have at least had a difficult pregnancy? If so, be aware you're not the first one. Take some comfort from the Word of God. Ladies, women throughout many, many centuries have suffered under that consideration. Rebecca, you might note this though, in the difficulty of her pregnancy, she approached God in prayer. I realize that it's useful to use doctors and we appreciate their knowledge and their wisdom and their training and their expertise. But don't ever overlook the great physician. And don't ever overlook the greatest of all who can overrule in all such circumstances. She petitioned God relative to that pregnancy. God revealed to her there are twins in your womb. Two nations, not one. And she furthermore was told the younger would be such that the elder would serve that younger. Now you and I remember that ultimately Jacob and Esau were born. But that brings me to the next observation. Genesis 25 is very clear in making this statement. It reads like this. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob. Those kids grew up appreciating the following fact. One of them was dad's favorite. One was mom's favorite. And that didn't go well at all. And you and I remember what happened as a result in that family for many years thereafter when there was that partiality, that favoritism. 
How often can you think of other instances of the Word of God wherein something like that occurs? I think of Joseph, don't you? Who was Jacob's favorite son? He had 12 of them, but yet one, it seems, was the prized possession. So much so, he made him a coat of many colors, and the other brothers hated him for it. I'm talking, of course, about Jacob's behavior toward Joseph, the oldest son of Rachel. At this point, might we say, though we might well appreciate some earlier comments, the point now needs to be made. As you and I strive as parents, it is a critical thing to always ensure we treat children equally. To treat them in such a way that never one thinks, well, he loves her or him better than me. After all, we're supposed to, in fact, appreciate the fatherhood of God in many ways. And isn't it true? He loves all of His created children. He sends His rain and sunshine both on the just and the unjust, Matthew 5, 44 and following. And you and I appreciate as easily as the Bible makes those points in Matthew 7 about these following comments. You and I, as we strive to appreciate that set of teachings in mothers, notice Rebecca is a great example of one who made a mistake in that way. I wonder how often she regretted it. Isn't it delightful to think then about mother number four? We've been encouraged then to treat our children with equality and to appreciate the great blessing that they are. Look at mother number four, Bathsheba. Now maybe you're wondering, how would Bathsheba be a reasonable example? But I think if you hold on with me a moment, we'll each be encouraged by her. Encouraged in at least some interesting ways. First, let's set the stage as we arrive at 2 Samuel 11. There, of course, David was the king of Israel at the time, the second king. And as he walked on his palace, he espied a woman washing herself, and he had her brought to him. That woman's name was Bathsheba. Now, she was a married woman. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And isn't it true that she and David committed adultery? Now, pausing at that point, notice what happened next. She became pregnant, and you and I recall what happened. She gave birth, but the child died. That little baby boy died. Oh, and David was in such grief... Have you ever thought about how Bathsheba reacted? The Bible doesn't say a lot about it, but surely any mother, if her child was on the verge of death, she'd be beside herself in concern, beside herself in anxiety. And yet that baby boy died. And God, in fact, told David it would be because of the fact you have sinned in this way. The story continues, though. Let's don't leave it there. She and David married after Uriah was killed. So David committed murder, and David, in fact, committed other sins along that line, including deceit. But then he took Bathsheba. And you and I remember, of course, think now about what happened in her life. Let me go ahead and introduce this statement. Do you know, or maybe you yourself, do you have some baggage in the history of your life? things you're not terribly proud of, events or matters that have occurred in and for your life. Surely that's true of Bathsheba. 
again, she committed adultery. And the baby that would become Solomon, that was the second baby that was delivered to her and her and David. Think about what Bathsheba knew. Bathsheba almost surely knew that David killed her first husband. She almost surely knew about the characteristic features of all that went into that. And not only did she know it when the time came for his funeral, probably she was standing beside David. How must that have failed? Do you think she was proud of it? And later, when Solomon was born, when he reached age, don't you know that Solomon knew what his dad and mom had done? He knew they'd had relations before they were married. He knew that David had killed his, his, uh, Uriah, his mother's first husband. Solomon must have known all of that. But back to Bathsheba. In the nature of her motherhood... I wonder what the word Solomon means. So this baby, Solomon, was given a name. Notice how it attaches unto God. It basically relates to one from God, or at least one that's attached to the nature of, of Godness. I find that interesting. So although she had sins in her life and she had difficulties and challenges, nonetheless she was able to rise above it apparently and be a rather powerful, influential example, not only to Solomon, but apparently to many other children as well. For that reason, I've made those statements at the bottom. All of us, not just mothers, not just women, all of us have a past. Sometimes we've made decisions that we're not proud of. Sometimes we have approached things and we later live to regret it. May I suggest that's one of the greatest blessings of Christianity. We are able to push forward. It's not that we perhaps can ever forget what happened. But I don't have to live with the guilt of it. I don't have to appreciate the fact to suffer because of the ongoing guilt of it. I can be forgiven of it. Jesus came to give a message of forgiveness, did He not? No wonder Paul could say in Philippians 3, beginning in verse, th verse 13, he spoke about the fact there were many things in his life that he too was rather regretful of. He said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press on to that which is before, pressing on to the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul had persecuted Christians. He, in fact, had imprisoned them. He had even officiated at their deaths. Paul said, I've got to try to forget that. I've got to try to at least go from this time forward. You and I can do that today. If there's baggage in your life, first you do need to make it right with God now. And then allow Him to fill your life with what is, of course, of gospel character and push onward to what's noble and servicing to the God of heaven. Let's close that slide with Proverbs 22.6. Maybe the most well-known verse in all of Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Notice that baggage may well be there in days gone by, but from this point forward, make a determination, make a dedication to serve the God of heaven faithfully in every aspect and avenue of life. These four mothers so far have brought us to think of one more. 
Now, the lesson text, you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, is really going to be, we'll be able to mention at least Ruth along the way. But I would invite you to consider Jochebed for just a moment. We remember who Jochebed was. She was the mother of Moses. Amram and Jochebed were his parents. And as we reflect upon the character and the nature of this woman, start with these comments with me. She, of course, bore a son, but unfortunately there was this terrible decree from the Egyptian king. All the baby boys who were of Hebrew character were to be slain. They were to be drowned, if you please. And yet, she took the nerve, the liberty, if you please, to put her baby there in the waters of the Nile River. Don't you know how anxious she must have been? What if something happens? What if an animal causes that little basket to turn over and my baby dies? Nonetheless, she had enough conviction to put Miriam at a distance to watch. And sure enough, all turned out well when the daughter of Pharaoh came to wash herself and found the basket. And she was so enamored with the little baby that, of course, she took it with her and she, in fact, reared it in an Egyptian household. But consider the following with me. The lady that was chosen to be a nurse to that little baby was none other than the very mother of the baby itself, Jochebed. Notice how she instilled in that youngster. Because when the time arrived that he did see some injustice relative to the people of God, he in fact easily set aside his attachment to, e to Egypt. And in so doing... The training of his mother must have had a great influence upon what he stood for, the kind of man he was. Although he was reared in Pharaoh's household, he was an Israelite. He was of the chosen royal people. He was of those individuals directed and dedicated to the God of heaven through the people of Abraham. No wonder the following comment then is in order. She instilled in him the nature of who he is. You are a person of God and mothers. Never forget how special it is when you instill in those youngsters what's right, what's wrong, training their conscience in the way it ought to go, and understanding that which can, of course, be the consequence of it, a life of citizenry and a life of dedication to the ultimate great priest of all. Isn't it fantastic to think then about the determination of Ruth in that regard? Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Now it's true that Ruth made those words to, to Naomi. Words of loyalty. Words of allegiance. Mothers, your children, though, you rear them with the same with attributes that quite often are the same. Loyal to God, faithful to His cause, determined to consider God and the church and Jesus Christ and those in priority above all else. That's a high challenge, but what a great, great responsibility. As you consider those things in your life, and the nature of Jochebed, let's close that slide with a thrilling statement of 
3 John verse 4. I know it's near the end of the New Testament. But in that little book, John made this statement. A statement of excitement, a statement of thrill and joy. And he stated how joyful it was to see the faithfulness in children. I know that you've often experienced that particular wish to see faithfulness in your children. Guide them in the way they ought to go. God would admonish you just like Lois and Eunice, just like others. But may I say, even when you face challenges, when there are things that happen and it shakes your consideration, I hope you'll think about some Bible mothers. They had their challenges. Everything wasn't always smooth with Sarah and Bathsheba and Eve and these others we've looked at, but they met those challenges. And though there were stumbles and hiccups on occasion along the way, you and I can overcome them as well. And we can be forgiven of any wrongs that there may be in life. And we can be faithful unto God. And that's the highest joy and the highest wish of all. Let's close our lesson then like this today. We do again wish Happy Mother's Day to each and every one. And as we use these mothers and the challenges they face, I want you to know that even in the midst of any challenges you may face, God can be there. He will be there if you'll let Him be. And He will provide you with the strength, the knowledge, and the wisdom to overcome any of those challenges that may in fact cloud your way. We as the husbands and the men, we do want to be encouragements to you and we wish to express our thanks to you and all that you do. Today, let's offer the Lord's invitation though at this time. If there's anyone in this audience, mother or otherwise, and all is not well with your soul, that's the first thing to make sure is right. We here, of course, by ourselves can't do that. That has to be done by God, for the sins are against Him, not against me, not against, let's say, any other man in particular. But it's God that must make it right, and He sent His Son to make that possible. Jesus died on the cross, and we read in various New Testament passages, He shed His blood that you can be covered by it and be forgiven of any and every sin you've ever committed. But you've got to make the decision to want that to happen. You do that if you're an alien sinner by believing in Jesus as the Son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, commanded in texts like Acts 2, 38. Confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God and be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins. If today we could help in accomplishing that, we'd be happy to do it. If you've become a Christian, though, and maybe you have begun to live in a way that's brought reproach upon you and upon Jesus and upon the church. And maybe it's brought disgrace to what you once stood for. Don't you want to make it right today? It is a fantastic feeling to be cleansed and know that all of those black marks and all of those transgressions and violations and failures are wiped away as far as their guilt. You can be pure and sanctified and whole and clean. That requires that you make confession of those things as you repent of them and invite brethren to pray unto God on your behalf. And we'd be honored to do that to do today as well. If we could help anybody in these ways today, the Lord's invitation is extended. Won't you come now while together we stand, while we sing?